Now it's recording. Okay. Will this be enough distance? Just yeah, this has really good, good microphone. Okay. Thank you so much. And this is the microphone. In case it's showing Okay. Is it recording already? Yes, yes, it's recording. You can okay. see that. Okay. Okay. Ah, so here we go. This is our first night um, from our first full day of practice here, and I want to first and foremost congratulate you all. And I hope at this point we are beginning to find some sense of a little bit of rhythm within our retreat life. And it may take a, f a few days. I know there's been a lot of changes. And as I've mentioned, um, the teachings in mindfulness are directly related to working with changes, which is an inherent characteristic of life. These changes, as we sit here in Finland, are shared within our common humanity all over the world. We all share, at times, the changing nature of things, uncertainty, unreliability. This is our life, the sometimes metaphorically spoken as the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And it's all experienced within the body and the mind, the heart. There's some beautiful words from the Buddha in a Pali text called the Samyutta Nikaya. He says that within this fathom-long body, with its thoughts and emotions, lies our world its origin, its cessation, its pathway to freedom is found within this fathom-long body with its thoughts and emotions. And a fathom is a, a measurement used uh, in the maritime in the ocean as far as measuring depths of water. It's approximately, oh, couple of meters, around six feet or so. So the length of a human being, average. Within this fathom-long body, with its thoughts and emotions, lies our world. Its beginning, its ending, the pathway to deep freedom is found within this fathom-long body, with its thoughts and emotions. And our mindfulness practice is attending bringing awareness to this fathom-long body and to the thoughts and emotions. We bring our mindfulness to the body, thoughts and emotions, and these really encapsulate or they are found within these four foundations of mindfulness. I was speaking about these earlier. In these four foundations that we bring mindfulness to, into this fathom-long body and the thoughts and emotions, is this first foundation, the mindfulness of the body. In Pali, Kayaga Sati the mindfulness of the body. In this retreat, we're going to be practicing with the four foundations of mindfulness. These four foundations are also found in MBSR. I will explain a little bit about this, um, how MBSR distills these practices later. In the foundation of the body, there are six distinct practices. And 
we've already begun to work with the first three. The first practice is the mindfulness of breathing. The second is being mindful of our posture, standing, lying, sitting, walking. The third practice of the body is the practice of bringing our mindfulness into different day-to-day -day activities. So we've been mindful of eating and uh, bending, toileting, showering, all these different activities we bring our mindfulness to. And of course, these three practices are what's taught in MBSR, the breath, the posture, the different bringing mindfulness into our day-to-day -day life. The fourth of the practices within the body is actually what I consider to be the grandmother or the grandfather of the body scan. So we know about the body scan in MBSR beginning with the left foot, working our way through the body part by part to the top of the head. The original body practice is actually found in this first foundation of mindfulness and it's actually called the 32 parts of the body meditation. This is the great grandmother and grandfather of the body scan, the original body scan. The 32 parts of the body is comprised of 20 solid parts and 12 liquid. We also want to understand that there's way more than 32 parts of course to a body, but these parts are like ambassadors or diplomats or doorways, entrances into the body, into this fathom-long body. So you might be curious to know what, what are the 32 parts? So I'm going to recite them to you because I'm actually very fond of this practice. It goes in groups of fives for the solid parts and two groups of sixes for the liquid parts. So it goes head hair, body hair, nails, that's fingernails and toenails, head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin. It's the first five. Second grouping is what begins to, if you unzipper the skin, there's muscles, cartilages, tendons, sometimes we just call them sinews, flesh sinews, bones, bone marrow, and kidneys. The next grouping is large intestine, small intestine, stomach, feces, and brain. Very interesting arrangement. The feces is next to the brain. Maybe there's no coincidence. Maybe the Buddha had a sense of humor. Though we also know that actually within the digestive system is the second brain, the nervous system connected to the digestive system. Large intestine, small intestine, stomach, feces, brain. And then of course it's heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, and lungs. So those are the 20 solid parts. You got it? Yep. <laughs> and then the two groups of liquid parts this gets kind of gross. Bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat. Then tears, grease, saliva, mucus, oil of the joints, and urine. <laughs> you'll have to get the finish for this. This particular practice is a very intensive practice. I actually at Spirit Rock teach retreats just on these parts of the body. I'll be doing one in September, if you want to come over. <laughs> Where we, we begin the practice by reciting these parts, forwards and backwards, head here, body here, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, and so forth. I'll slow down. <laughs> but this is like the great grandmother, grandfather to the body skin. This is where it came out of. So just a little bit more on this before I go to the other practices. It's a very interesting arrangement. Head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin is what we begin with. And you think about it, these are the five parts when we look around at each other, what do we see? Well, we see some head hair, <laughs> body hair, nails, 
teeth and skin. When we look at a person, this is what we see. And we create a whole world around it. The cosmetic industry, they know that we fuss a lot about head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin. And consequently, the cosmetic industry is a multi-billion dollar industry fussing with head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin. Now in this practice, we want to begin to penetrate into these parts to see them actually as they really are. So if you opened up a medical dictionary and you looked under head hair, it would say, Head hair is thin, um, needle-like outgrowths from the skin of animals, thread-like outgrowths from the skin of animals. Its purpose is protection from ultraviolet light and also supportive for thermal regulation. Head hair is just thread-like outgrowths from the skin of mammals. So whenever my wife comes back getting her hair cut, I say, thread-like outgrowths from the skin of mammals, head hair. She just kind of smiles, I hate my haircut, or I love my haircut. How many times have we left with our haircut saying, oh shit, I hate it? <laughs> Anybody? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thread-like outgrowths from the skin of mammals. Its purpose is protection from ultraviolet light, keeping our heads warm in the winter. This is what head hair really is. So we go through each of these parts, penetrating into what it really is. And it begins to kind of neutralize the infatuation, perhaps, that we have in regards to the body. Begin to see the body as it really is, not in a sense of uh, negativity, but to just to understand this is this is its real nature. This is this is what it is. Probably um, the cosmetic industry may not appreciate what I'm saying, but this is we're penetrating into these parts: head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin. Then zippering underneath the body to sinews, flesh and sinews and bones and bone marrow and kidneys. We might assume that it's quite a jump between bone marrow to kidneys, but we come to understand, appreciate uh, this wisdom that the bone marrow has to do with blood production, formation of blood cells, and the kidneys have to do with the purification of blood. So it's a very interesting arrangement of these parts and how they're selected. In short, the practice of the 32 parts of the body, similar to the body scan, is to bring awareness into the body, to be mindful of what it evokes, what arises physically, mentally, and emotionally, and to acknowledge what's present. As the 32 parts of the body develops, it brings us to the next particular practice within the foundation of the body called the meditation on the four primary elements within the body. So in Buddhist psychology, it is said that the body is made of four primary elements, solidity, liquidity, motion, and temperature. Solids, liquids, movement and temperature. As we work with the 32 parts of the body, these parts begin as our concentration and understanding deepens, we begin to, these parts begin to break down into solids, liquids, motion, temperature, revealing the, on one aspect, the interconnectedness that these atoms, these phenomena, the body, the parts that make up the body, the particles are here found within the body and found everywhere. The sense of separation begins to dissolve. The sense of self and the I, me, and my that separates begins to dissolve. We begin to experience that um, 
sense of interconnectedness in breaking free of this limited definition of self. I'll be going more into this later. As far as the elements go, just pausing for a moment and you will experience all four of them within the nose. So I'd like to just invite you as you breathe in and breathe out in the nose, sense and feel into that point of contact where you feel the ear brushing against the nose and the tip of the nose or the inner nostrils or the upper lip. Where you feel that contact, that is the element of solidity, the solid element, the earth element. And continuing being mindful of the breath and now bringing attention within the nose to Often in the nose, there's a sense of wetness, which is the element of liquidity. So sensing and feeling into the nose, there may be some wetness. This is the element of liquidity, water element. And now continuing to be mindful of the breath in and out and being aware of its motion. The breath comes in, the breath goes out. There's a sense of movement, the element of motion, right there within the nose. So you breathe in and breathe out. And lastly, as we breathe in and out, Think of the sense of this, because there's the breath going in and out, there's movement, and that movement is rubbing up against liquids and solids, generates heat. You put a thermometer in the body, it reads temperature, 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, I don't know, about 30 degrees Celsius, I'm not sure, the temperature in the body. 37. This is because of motion, solids and liquids, creates friction, creates heat. So feeling into the warmth of the body and particularly you can feel the sense of temperature in the nostrils because as you breathe in, you'll feel that the breath is cooler and that circulates in this system, 37 degrees Celsius. And when the breath is exhaled through the nose, it's warmer. This is the element of temperature. So right within the nose, there's these elements of solids, liquids, motion, and temperature. And this can be expanded into the body, the solidness of the bones, the wetness of the saliva, the movement of the heart beating, digestion system, the ability to move limbs, and the sense of temperature, the warmth and the coolness. This is the fifth practice in the foundation of the body. And the last one is a very powerful practice on the mindfulness of death. There's actually nine contemplations on the body in death that begins with the first day of when one dies and then the gradual deterioration, the gradual, the body beginning to turn gradually into dust. So it's a practice of the mindfulness of the decomposition of the body. We may wonder why would there be such a graphic definition and I'll spare you some of the graphic details but a pretty amazing nine different stages of decomposition <laughs> and there's an old Hindu proverb that says everyone thinks everyone else is going to die but not me 
and I might be one of those type of people, so maybe it would actually take me seeing a corpse right in front of me and watching it turn into dust to really get that truth. This is how we work with the mindfulness of the body. Often in our day-to-day -day practices, the 32 parts of the body, the element practice, and the mindfulness of death is not used so often, but it is on occasion. And I feel like I want to at least give you, to let you know of this first foundation of mindfulness that practices, is taught these six different practices. The second foundation of mindfulness has to do with what's called Vedana, that's the Pali for feeling tones, hedonic tones, the gut feelings that arise, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. We'll actually be going into this practice tomorrow. So it's being aware of the different impressions that begin to activate our reactivity. And particularly, this is a very important foundation because it is here, if we become mindful, we potentially can prevent a whole domino effect of reactivity of these habitual patterns if we catch it early at the gut impulse level. So tomorrow I'll speak more about this, but the mindfulness of feeling tones. The third foundation of mindfulness is the mindfulness of the states of mind. So many different states of mind coming and going, bringing awareness to the mind states. We'll be practicing this um, a couple of days. fourth foundation has to do with particular teachings that help to support and to deepen our understanding of the body, of the feeling tones, and the mind states. And so we'll be speaking about that as well. I'll be speaking actually later tonight about one of the very first teachings in this fourth foundation of mindfulness and working with the five hindrances. And so John Kabat-Zinn, he experienced these teachings of the four foundations of mindfulness, as well as these four powerful realizations that the Buddha realized sitting underneath the Bodhi tree of suffering, its causes, the path to its lessening, the Eightfold Path, and I'll be speaking about these later. The Marks of Existence, and as he was sitting at Insight Meditation Society being exposed to these teachings, this is where the inspiration arose, as I mentioned yesterday, for the, the seeds and the implementation of mindfulness-based stress reduction. And as many of you know, mindfulness has spread its wings into psychotherapy. There's mindfulness-based cognitive therapy that is shown to be extremely effective in working with relapse and depression. There's awareness and commitment therapy that uses mindfulness. There's dialectical behavioral therapy. There's a wonderful program that a dear friend and colleague started called Mindfulness-Based Childbirth and Parenting. Nancy Bardicke, Alan Marlott and colleagues started mindfulness-based relapse and prevention. Mindfulness has spread its wings into business and corporations. There's even a, a conference that happens once a year in the Silicon Valley area called Wisdom 2.0 that is dedicated to how to bring more awareness into technology, into corporations, into how we are delivering this fast-paced technological uh, world, how, how do we bring more integrity and heart? It's wonderful that there's actually a conference about this. Mindfulness has spread its wings into education from early school to graduate schools to colleges. Mindfulness has spread its wings into science, medicine, government, a few years ago, 
I was at an international conference and one of uh, a U.S. congressman stood up and gave a talk on bringing mindfulness into the government. I almost felt like I had to pinch my cheeks. Is it a U.S. congressman talking about mindfulness? <laughs> like I never would have dreamed that that could even be possible. His name is Tim Ryan. He went on to also write a book called A Mindful Nation. It's kind of like a U.S. congressman? Of course, mindfulness has found its way into neuroscience, and particularly a whole field of neuroscience has been developed called effective neuroscience. And Richie Davison from the University of Wisconsin-Madison is one of the champions behind this research uh, that is really changing the nature of neuroscience and how the mind affects the brain and the body. I know many of you know there's been some, you did some of the earliest studies on the effects of the mind and how it affects the architecture of the brain, how it affects the body, and this term that's been developed called neuroplasticity. How our thoughts and emotions shape our brains. And not only that, there's research in another field called epigenetics that's looking at how meditation affects even in the chromosomes or the telomeres. And so there's a tremendous amounts of research going into meditation and its impact and effect on the body. It's important for us to know, because we can get kind of lost in the neuroscience. It's almost, it's almost like addictive, this whole thing of science in the brain. It's important to know that the death rate is still one per person. Mm. Mindfulness is not going to eliminate death. It's not going to eliminate illness. It's not going to eliminate aging. At the same time, if we can learn how to live our lives in a better way and support to live as long as possible in the healthiest of ways, it's very helpful. But probably one of the deepest aspects of mindfulness practice, as John Kabat-Zinn likes to say, it's the coming into terms with the way things are, with a greater sense of wisdom, a greater sense of compassion, a greater sense of balance. These teachings, though, point to even a deeper penetration into the gradual lessening and potential removal of the deep sources of suffering that in Buddhist psychology encapsulates or reduces to three different areas. The first is greed, the second is hatred, and the third is delusion or ignorance. So I just want to name that the deepest implications of mindfulness practice is liberation. Not just dealing with life's ever-changing ever nature. Yes, that can be a part of it, but these teachings point to liberation the heart and the mind. But I will say that <coughs> through the work of John Kabat-Zinn, and I, I really have to say almost, and I say almost, not fully, but almost single-handedly, his brilliance of also being a scientist and a meditator and very compassionate and no bullshit. <laughs> um, he knew very early on the importance of studying the mindfulness practices, doing research, getting them published in medical journals, and it has set a, a wave of exponential growth of the study of mindfulness around the world that actually we could really say this has never happened before in the history of the world. It's like a convergence of where science is meeting meditation and there's, the measurements are still rudimentary but they're enough to show us that something is there. And of course there needs to be a lot more research and 
there's now a lot of hype about mindfulness. If you become mindful this and mindful that, it's like, you know, let us uh, be humble here. But something is pointing. This convergence of the meditation and science has never happened before in the history of the world in such a, a way that really is exciting to me in some ways. And I've had been blessed with the opportunity to travel to many different lands around the world and as well as teaching meditation retreats I also work for the Center for Mindfulness where I also teach teacher training retreats such as the teacher development intensive the practicum and so I meet a lot of different people and it's very exciting it's so wonderful to be here in Finland and meeting you and your interest and wanting to bring more mindfulness, awareness, and heart to your people. And I, I meet people like this all over the world. And, you know, this world, I mean, I don't want to be naive. There's a lot of work to be done here. But the more I think that we can bring awareness and heart into the world, it's an amazing thing. And we never know the seeds that are planted when we become aware. My teacher, Tampulucero, he would again and again speak about the importance of awareness, the importance of mindfulness, that this will bring you knowledge. He gave an example one time. He asked us, who's worse? The person that's killing and knowing that they're killing or the person that's killing that doesn't know that they're killing. And I said to Sierra, I said, well, the person that, that knows that they're killing is worse because they know better. And he said, that's right. And the reason that, uh, that if, they, if they should know better, maybe one day they will actually stop killing because that knowledge will bring them to some understanding. Conversely, though, if you don't know, you can continue spinning around for a very long time. Kind of going through all that. In MBSR and other mindfulness-based interventions, you will find that within the curriculum is embedded these powerful teachings of the foundations of mindfulness, as well as this investigation into suffering, stress reactivity, becoming mindful and beginning to become aware of these habitual patterns and beginning to make positive changes to reduce suffering. John did not, in my opinion, and I think with many, he did not detextualize the Dharma, if you will. The Dharma refers to the teachings within Buddhist psychology, but it was a recontextualization relanguaging. I'll just read you something from what John wrote in an article. He says, the intention and approach behind MBSR was never, was never meant to exploit, fragment, or decontextualize the Dharma, but rather to recontextualize it within the frameworks of science, medicine, and healthcare. So it would be useful to diverse people who could not enter it through the Dharma door. MBSR is founded upon the principle of primum non seri, to do no harm, this is the Hippocratic Oath. And such principles are the foundation within the context of MBSR, whether it's offered in a hospital setting or elsewhere doing no harm. <coughs> the wonderful thing about MBSR is that we're not, this is not like some secret 
Buddhist covert operation to make you become a Buddhist. The practices of mindfulness are here for anyone and for many years I worked in a Christian hospital. Many of the priests and nuns actually took my classes and found that the mindfulness was very useful in their own way, in their own practices. It's also fair to say that MBSR, it draws some of its underpinnings definitely from the Theravadan Buddhist schools, Buddhist psychology, but it also has influences in the non-dual schools within Mahayana Buddhism, particularly Zen. It also incorporates yoga, as we know. The wisdom traditions, Ramana Maharshi, Nisagata, Krishnamurti, as well as an incorporation of stress physiology, stress psychology, education, effective neuroscience, and group learning process. So MBSR has a, a number of different elements. And John's aspiration was that he said that from the, and this is from his words, from the very beginning, there was for me one primary and compelling reason, reason for attempting to bring mindfulness into the mainstream of society. That was to relieve suffering <coughs> and to catalyze greater compassion and wisdom in our lives and in our culture. The intention is to help relieve suffering. In that moment of wonderful inspiration and vision that John had, he felt that mindfulness, this is in his words, could be mainstreamed into healthcare and society and spread throughout the world and give rise to a global renaissance for the benefit of our world and to all sentient beings. It's a very beautiful vision. I'd like to read that again that the vision that drives MBSR and mindfulness is that it could be mainstreamed into healthcare and society and spread throughout the world and give rise to a global renaissance for the benefit of our world and to all sentient beings. It's very beautiful. So I know that I've been speaking some and so we'll just pause for a moment and feel free to stretch, stand, shift your posture because I'm just beginning. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Actually, I just want to ask, am I speaking too fast or is it okay? It's okay. It's okay. Could be a little louder. Okay, we'll try that. Yeah, just take a stretch for a moment. <coughs> so, for the remainder, my talk tonight, I, I want to speak about something very practical in how to work with our practice. And this actually comes from the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the dharmas. The very first teaching is on the five hindrances. So I'd like to just begin with a kind of a humorous reading from a Buddhist monk, Bhante Gunaratana. I believe he's also been translated into Finnish. It's called um, Mindfulness. It's common. What is it called? I don't know, but it's translated. Yeah. yeah. Mindfulness in plain English, but be Mindfulness in plain Finnish. No. <laughs> Very wonderful book. But he writes here, somewhere in this process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. 
<laughs> that your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem, he says. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way, but perhaps you just never noticed. So here's one that offers a little bit more hope. And um, this is from my beloved Hafiz. I wonder if Hafiz has been translated into Finnish. I would hope so. Yeah, Persian poet, wild man, extraordinaire. I love Hafiz. So this one's called For Three Days. Reminds me of when sitting in a meditation retreat. So not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone in your closet for three days. That would do. And that means not leaving. You better call a friend and get some help with a few sandwiches and a little chamber pot that's a toilet. No reading, uh-uh, no writing poems. That would be cheating. The sitting alone is not recommended if you're normally sedated. But dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried inside here. Ruby, precious stone. Don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried inside our hearts. We may not realize or see yet the ruby inside our own hearts. Bhante Gunaratana speaks about meditation practice. And this might be a word that you might not be too familiar with kind of older English, but he calls to sit in meditation takes a sort of a, like a, a gumption. Gumption means take some guts, take some strength to sit with ourselves. John Kabat-Zinn says meditation practice is not for the faint of heart because we sit with ourselves. We see the good, the bad, the ugly at times. One Tibetan teacher said, meditation is like brain surgery with no anesthesia. <laughs> or at times it's like just getting one insult after another. Yet there's a ruby buried inside here. And I trust you already know about that because you're here. Trust you know that to facilitate, to teach mindfulness, we need to be a practitioner. This practice is to be embodied, to be experienced, to be lived. This practice is an inside job, a lived experience. There's a story about a professor in a university that was a professor of swimology. Knew how to, knew everything about swimming. <laughs> One day the professor was out in a lake and a storm came and it was getting rocky seas and it looked like the boat was gonna sink and the captain said, everyone's gonna have to get out of the boat, you're gonna have to swim to the shore. And the professor started shouting, I don't know how to swim. I don't know how to swim. We don't want to be professors of swimology without knowing how to swim. Professors of Buddhology, professors of mindfulness, and not know how to practice and work with our practice in an embodied way. For us to facilitate and to teach mindfulness, it comes from our own experience. To sit with others in pain, we are sitting with ourselves in pain. 
we get to know the territory of our own pain. Then we can be with others and their pain and not necessarily try to patronize it or smooth it over or make it deliciously whatever. That we meet a person in a very authentic, genuine, in real way that comes from our own ability to sit with ourselves. This is why in training for MBSR teaching it's required that we sit in retreat. That we sit, and the reason the intention behind sitting in retreat is really to begin to sit with our own pain, with our own joys, with our own hearts. In the cultures where there's shamans, yeah, that word shaman, yeah, and it is said that shamans will travel with a person to their hell and back. And the only way that they know how to do that is because they've traveled to their own hells and back. And so part of our practice is sitting with our own hells. So why it's an inside job. You know, Spirit Rock, for example, is a beautiful meditation center. You go there, you get a room. <laughs> you're, you're, you're on the place. And there's deer and this past beautiful pastoral hills. It's very beautiful. The meditation hall is like a spaceship. It, I mean, it's just, it's a nice place. Yet inside, this mind fathom long body, it may not be so pastoral. Even at Spirit Rock, the inside job, things are coming up. When I lived in the monastery, it took me years to realize this, that sitting in the monastery, sitting in retreat, well, I'm gonna introduce you to some English swear words. And so I, I used to call the monastery of meditation truth like living inside a shit accelerator. <laughs> <laughs> it's like putting shit into a fan and it just <laughs> And so sitting with ourselves, a lot of shit comes up. And particularly in this retreat, this is like the major shit retreat. <laughs> this is the advanced retreat. Bless you all for working with this. And we have a lot of opportunity to work with the roosters. They're all over. <laughs> Taken in the context of practice, this is the practice. Sometimes we ask ourselves, how do you know if we're making progress in the practice? It's a very valid question. And often the progress is marked by my one's ability to see that they've been able to let go more. They've been able to see much more clearly into where I'm getting stuck, where I'm grasping onto, where I'm pushing away. So we get a chance in retreat in a very magnified, amplified. This is why I call it a shit accelerator. It gets amplified. Like, how come that person in front of me, they're pouring out that pea soup too slowly? <laughs> we call it the Vipassana Vendetta. We, like, we, you know, someone's putting on their shoes too slowly and I'm getting really pissed off. <laughs> All of a sudden, I'm looking on the other side of the room. I've never talked to this person. I don't even know if I've fully seen their face, but I'm falling in love. <laughs> it's called the Vipassana romance. I'm getting some attraction. Ooh, this kind of looks interesting. And then you go off in your fantasy. You're married to this person. You have children. You get divorced. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, like, whew, the mind. Here and there. It's an inside job, this work on ourselves. So it's very predictable when we sit in retreat that certain challenges will arise, particularly in the first couple days of practice. A friend of mine affectionately calls it, the first two days is like sitting in the swamp. You know what the swamp is? It's kind of murky and it's, so we're kind of in the swamp the first couple of days. Now what does that mean, the swamp? It means that sometimes these hindrances that impede our steadiness of mind arise. 
which is normal and natural. And I was actually very relieved when I began studying meditation practices that in the teachings of the fourth foundation, the very first teaching is about how to work with the challenges that come up when you meditate. And I, I went, whew, okay, I'm normal. Like, this happens to other people. And so what are those five classic challenges? The first is at times we're sitting and we're occupied with this sense of wanting this desire, grasping, wanting. Anybody have any wanting? Yeah. So that arises. Conversely, if there's wanting, you bet there's not wanting. Aversion, hatred, pushing away. So this is another impediment that arises within our practice, the sense of aversion, not wanting. Third type of impediment or challenge that arises is sometimes sleepiness. We've been on the go. Now we've come to retreat and we finally stop. And the next thing you know, I'm snoring. Mm -hmm. I didn't even realize how exhausted I am until I've begun to stop. Sloth and torpor, sleepiness arising. The fourth hindrance is restlessness. Very difficult to sit inside our own skin and flesh and bones. The fifth one is doubt. I don't know. I mean, maybe this med I've heard meditation helps, but I, I don't know if it's going to help me. Yeah. Anybody have any of these five? <laughs> doubt, wanting, not wanting, restlessness, sleepiness. So we want to just say this is absolutely normal. You're not a bad meditator for having these. This is normal occurrences of what happens. And there's antidotes to work with these hindrances or challenges. Sometimes we just have maybe one that predominates. Sometimes it could be two or three. Or sometimes we have all five going at the same time. So we call this an MHA, a multiple hindrance attack. <laughs> it's very unpleasant. There's a simile that speaks about these hindrances and when you're and the simile and it's wonderful here in Finland that has so many bodies of water lakes. So there's a lake and when you're filled with like in a lake Normally you can clearly see through, but if you're filled with desire, it's like there's a, a beautiful colored dye that's on the top of the water so you can't see in. If you're feeling a lot of aversion and not wanting, it's, you can't see through because it's boiling, it's hot and choppy. If you're having a lot of sleepiness, the simile of the pond is that there's all this thick algae, so you can't see in it. If you're restless, there's the image of the strong winds and there's waves and it's moving the waters all over the place, so difficult to see the clarity within the water. And when you're filled with doubt, it's like the mud is being stirred up from the bottom and all the water is very cloudy and dirty and you can't see anything. This is the simile of the pond with these hindrances. So in working with these hindrances of we want to distill like a medicine from the poison. And there's possibilities to do that. 
really shifts our context. And Pema Chodron, she offers a very beautiful teaching here where she says, generally speaking, we regard discomfort in any form as bad news. But for practitioners of meditation who have a hunger to know what is true, feelings like disappointment, doubt, embarrassment, wanting, not wanting, resentment, anger, jealousy, fear, and so forth, instead of being bad news, they're actually revealing very clear moments that teach us where we're holding back, where we're stuck. They're like messengers that show us with clarity where we need to bring more attention to. So there's some positive regards that we can begin to transform these hindrances as teachings and learnings about ourselves. One of the best ways to work with any of these hindrances begins with becoming mindful of them. So again, this point within MBSR, the difference between stress reactivity that is fueled by unawareness, old habitual patterns, when we become mindful, we see where it is that we are, we can respond to it in a much more clear, wise, and compassionate way. And so it's too, working with these hindrances that come up in meditation begins with our mindfulness. Viktor Frankl has that beautiful quote that between the stimulus and the response, there is a space, and in that space lies our freedom to choose. When we're filled with desire, may we become aware of it, to know it, to feel it, not to analyze it, but to, to experience it, to bring awareness to it, to acknowledge it. Perhaps it leads to a place of investigation. What, what is here, this moment of wanting? What is really being longed for? So we begin to work with it, begin to develop deeper understanding the same, of course, with bringing our awareness to its opposite of aversion, to feel it, to know it, to acknowledge it. The same can be applied to sleepiness, again, to feel it, to know it, to acknowledge it, and to begin to understand maybe there's some causes. Maybe I'm tired. Maybe I need to sleep more. Maybe there's some resistance. I don't want to see what's here, so I kind of tune out, go somewhere else. So bringing our awareness, we can learn about ourselves. When we're sleepy, we can open our eyes, we can stand up, we can change position. We can imagine that we're sitting at the edge of a 10,000, or 10, a big cliff. <laughs> In one false move, you fall over and you're a goner. That will keep you awake. Or if you're sitting and thinking that there's going to be a tiger that's going to come down your path, that will keep you awake. If all else fails, sleep and be happy and wake up and do the meditation. Restlessness is like a pacing tiger. It can barely be in our skin. And this is a lot of energy, but it's not harnessed in such a way that it is constructive. So sometimes when we're feeling very restless, it may be helpful in a walking meditation to do some brisk walking, to really harness that energy, to work with the restlessness, to become mindful of it, to acknowledge it. And the same, of course, with doubt. Again, to bring our awareness, to know it, to name it, to acknowledge it. Perhaps at times it's helpful to talk with a, with a friend about your doubts and to be heard, to be understood. So we can work with doubt as a practice as well.
In holding our practice, I want to just say again and again this attitude that we have that means so much. The attitude of compassion and kindness and how we are with ourselves. So even in the midst, tomorrow if you come across some of these hindrances coming at you, name it, denote, oh here's wanting, oh here's not wanting, oh here's restlessness, doubt, here's sleepiness. The knowing of it will begin to set us or free. I'll speak more about this later. But in the meantime, as we hold our practice, doing the best that we can. So if you don't believe me, this poem is dedicated to you. I'm getting towards the end. This is about being made of the right meditative stuff. So if you can start the day without coffee or pep pills and be cheerful and ignore any aches and pains, you must be made of the right meditative stuff. If you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles and eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, you must be made of the right meditative stuff. If you can take criticism and blame without resentment if you can face the world without lies, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without liquor, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all of these things, you must be the family dog. <laughs> so, so much for being made out of the right meditative stuff. Remember, I was speaking again about this attitude of practicing with a sense of befriending. So I'll just end with this one last poem from Bob Sharples, or actually reading from Bob Sharples is an Australian meditation teacher. It's from a book he wrote called Meditation Calming the Mind. And he says, don't meditate to fix yourself, to heal yourself, to improve yourself, to redeem yourself, rather do it as an act of love. In this way, there's no longer any need for the subtle aggression of self-improvement and for the endless guilt of not doing enough. It offers the possibility of an end to the ceaseless rounds of trying so hard that wraps our lives in a knot. How about meditation as an act of love, a sense of a befriending? As I mentioned earlier, I think we all know about that aggression of self-improvement, the guilt of not doing enough. This end, the possibility of an end to the ceaseless rounds of trying so hard that wraps our lives in a knot. What would it be like just for this retreat? How about just for this moment? A sense of inviting in, a sense of befriending, a sense of kindness. So just taking that in, in this moment, taking in, inviting in a sense of friendliness to myself as I am, imperfect, imperfectly perfect, in this moment, inviting in a sense of ease, kindness. May there be peace. May all beings dwell with peace. Thank you all very much for your time, for your practice, for your patience. Really feel a lot of gratitude. And um, may you have a good rest tonight and know that you're welcome to um, 
Well, we're going to continue practicing for a bit more. I know some of you are off to sauna land. I never realized, like, the, the French love wine, the Finns love sauna. <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to try to mess around with that, so sorry if I've uh, got you a little late to it, but may you enjoy. And continue with the practice in everything we do, that there's no break. But when I say that, it doesn't mean you have to hit your head against the wall. <laughs> Very naturally, just when you're scratching your nose, you're just aware you're scratching. And when you're walking, you're aware you're walking. And the moment you realize you're not present, you are, the practice begins again. Doing the best you can. Good night. Good night. Till for walking, for those that are leaving, and 